Welcome to Faith Baptist Church, Great Village, where we believe in the truth of the gospel, building of community, and engaging in the mission of Christ. We hope you enjoy this week's message as our pastors share from God's Word. Good morning, everyone. It's uh, good, good to be with you. Good to be together. I, I want to start by thanking everyone for all of the cards and, and uh, notes and calls and, uh, and uh, especially for your love and prayers for, for me. Um, I think I'm doing pretty well, but I'm scheduled to see the surgeon tomorrow for a follow-up and we'll see what he has to say. But it's been a long winter. <laughs> it's been a long winter. It's been a long two years. Um, and uh, this is also... Uh, uh, the first time uh, that I will be speaking uh, in quite a while, uh, I think uh, 10, 10 weeks or so, uh, but it's also the first time that I'm speaking as a, an associate pastor and not as a lead pastor. I'm actually quite excited about that uh, new role, and I'm thankful for Josh's leadership and his strong emphasis on, on team, and, uh, which I appreciate very much. Um, now, I have an assignment this morning, and so I want to get to it. Um, I also have a time frame I'm working in, and so I want to be uh, thoughtful about that. But as Josh mentioned, it's, uh, this is week number 12 of a 12-week series that we're doing uh, on the, the one another passages of the New Testament. We we're calling it uh, Get Together or Get It Together, and, uh, and these, um, these statements are scattered throughout the New Testament, um, and in each case, the, uh, the single Greek word that's translated one another is the uh, Greek word elelon, and it occurs 100 times throughout the New, the New Testament. It's a very significant word, and it's a very important uh, concept. It's a reciprocal pronoun, and uh, there's a, a number of them. We've been doing a couple a week for the last uh, 12 weeks, and then... Uh, Today, we're, uh, we're going to finish up with one, one another. Um, the, main, the main one another command is to love one another. It's the, the central uh, idea that all of the others uh, grow out of. All of the one another's of the New Testament are practical ways that we can love one another. And love one another is the ultimate command given to the church in terms of our attitudes and actions towards each, each other. Uh, the word, the, the, um, the uh, phrase love one another uh, also occurs more throughout the, Old, the New Testament than any of the other admonitions. It occurs 13 times. And it's also where we derive our value, our core value of community. From John chapter 13, where Jesus says, A new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another as I have loved you. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples by your love for one another. Throughout this whole series, our central message has been a call for us to, uh, to not passively acquiesce to the cultural pressures or the uh, natural tendencies we have to pull back away from community towards 
individualism, towards uh, what works for me personally, but instead to press into what Jesus wants for our lives, which is what we call uh, community. It's the community that he envisioned when he said, I will build my church. In uh, Matthew chapter 16. So I got to preach the first two messages in the series. And, uh, and today I get to... Uh, to uh, share the, these uh, thoughts on the, the last one another that we're look, going to be looking at for a while. And it's Romans chapter 15 and verse 7. And I hope that you can uh, turn to the book of Romans with me, whether that's uh, on your device or, or whatever. We will be projecting um, scripture this morning on the screen as we usually do. But uh, we're going to be staying in the book of Romans. We're going to be uh, in Romans chapter uh, 15 and Romans chapter 14, and that's where we're going to be focusing our thoughts. And um, Romans 15, verse 7 says, Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Now, we're doing these in alphabetical order according to the English Standard Version. Uh, if we were using the uh, NIV or the NASB, we, this would have been our first one another because those translations have the, the, the admonition as accept one another. If you're reading King James, it, it will say receive one another. And, uh, but the order is not important. It's arbitrary, really, because these aren't given to us in some kind of sequence. And, and it's not, there's no order that they fall in. Uh, rather, they are all important all the time. But the admonition to welcome one another is a great one to either start with or finish with because it is a, a significant um, instruction for us as a church family. The word welcome, welcome one another, um, it is, in the Greek, it means to take to oneself. I don't think we should miss the significance of that. Because what, what that means then is that if we took it literally, it would mean hug one another. It's not easy to take that literally in these days. <laughs> the last two years have been rough on this part of our Christian living because and I, know I have a reputation being, for being physically demonstrative. I'm a huggy, touchy person. The COVID has been really tough on me, hard on me for a lot of, lot of reasons. And I, uh, I'm, uh, I'm liking the way this is going. I'm hoping we can continue to move this direction. To take one, take to oneself. Now, um, I'm not saying that the word, uh, I'm not saying that we're meant to take this literally. I'm just saying that that's what the word literally means. And, and, and uh, body language is a real thing, right? Have you ever talked to somebody and they, st and they stood like this? What does that communicate? Maybe that's your image of God. Because some people have an image of God like that. And Jesus came and he wants to smash that image. Because Jesus welcomed people 
with open arms. So the first thing is the meaning of the word welcome, and, and it means to take to oneself. But then we want to expand our appreciation for this idea and this, and this command uh, outward from there and uh, take note, for example, that he, what Paul, Paul says is welcome one another as Christ welcomed you. And um, that's with open arms. Open arms, what a, what a great name for a church. Isn't that? Uh, I think one of the best. Because we need to have grace for one another just like Jesus has grace for us. That's the idea, and it is such an important idea. And it's not just here. I mentioned a few moments ago John chapter 13, a new command I give to you. Jesus said that you love one another as I have loved you. Over in Ephesians chapter 4, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. And so um, I hope that we can get a real good grasp on this aspect of it because if there is any kind of key or, or that to, uh, to really practicing the Christian life and do, living our lives the way that we uh, are, are supposed to live, um, for Christ, uh, this would be it. We don't live out of our own strength. God supplies everything we need for life. Jesus didn't just give us an example. It's more than that. We are to love others with the love of God. John, 1 John chapter 4, we love because he first loved us. Romans chapter 5, 5, I love, I love that passage where it says, God has poured out uh, into our hearts the love of God by the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. I love that, the way Paul images that idea of God just pouring out his love. And we see that, that theme of abundance all through Scripture, you know, um, it's in Psalm 23, it's everywhere, this idea of overflowing abundance. God doesn't, is God's, there's nothing stingy about God. There's nothing re, reserved about God when it comes to his love for us. And in Romans 5, he says, the, the love of God has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given unto us. And there's many, many, many other passages. John 15, you remember Jesus said, abide in me because if, though, apart from me, you can do nothing. So it's, it's not just the... Um, the, the why, but also the how is included in this statement. Welcome one another just as Christ welcomed you. You know, it's so, it's so important because, because some of these things can be difficult. This isn't just feel-good kind of stuff, you know. We, I, words like love and kindness, I mean, they, they, they sound so wonderful, but, but it's, it's not because they're easy. I hope I hope you realize that. There's nothing, there's nothing easy about loving somebody. We, I know we tend to think that there is because we, can, we tend to, to just have that kind of thought going into it. But, and maybe sometimes, maybe sometimes it's not so hard. Maybe some of you aren't quite so hard to love. 
But sometimes it can be the hardest thing in the world to forgive somebody, to bear with somebody. To accept somebody. Remember those get-along shirts? I think we have a picture. Do we have a picture, uh, Aiden, that we can throw up there? Yeah. Do you remember those? (laughs) I'm not sure whose kids those are, but I'm sure they're none of yours. Um, (laughs) And those of you who have children, you know, there's those times when your kids aren't getting along, and and so you got to break up the fight, and, and you say to them, you know, all right, now you need to apologize. And if you can get that out of them, which is not easy, then you might say, all right, give your brother a hug. And if you can, if you can convince them to do that, then maybe you'll say, now go play nice with each other. Um, but the point is, is that, that it's not always easy. These things aren't always easy. Sometimes they can be so hard that they feel humanly impossible. I know situations. I've talked to people who would say to me, there's no way I'm going to do that. Or I've had people say, I cannot do that. I cannot forgive that person. And I understand that. Because it's at times like that that these things can seem impossible, or at least, at least they're humanly impossible. But that's the whole point. They're humanly impossible. Jesus said, all things are possible with God. Christ said that. Both the why and the how are in these words, as Christ has welcomed you. That little word as, as Christ has welcomed you. Kathos in the Greek. It's an adverb. And Strong's Concordance says it means according to the manner in which or in the degree that. Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. And then there's that phrase at the end, for the glory of God. Romans chapter 15, verse 7. Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Jesus said this, in this, by this, my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Jesus said, by this shall all men know that you are my disciples, by your love for one another. Now, let's expand our observations a little bit more here. Because the first word in that sentence, Romans chapter 5, verse 7, is the word therefore. And the old preachers would say, when you see the word therefore, ask what it's there for. It's important because it's talking about the context of the admonition. And the context is, context is king. If you want to understand scripture or any, any literature for that matter or any form of communication, you better pay attention first to the context because the context will determine the meaning. Um, and the context, as we expand out from Romans chapter 15, verse 7, this, this statement, this one another uh, admonition, uh, therefore welcome one another, 
as Christ has welcomed you to the glory of, for the glory of God, as we expand out from there, we find that, that this statement is actually concluding a line of thought that Paul begins in Romans chapter 14, verse 1. The whole entire uh, chapter, Romans 14, leading up to chapter 15, verse 7, is all a line of thought that Paul is working out. And if you go back to Romans chapter 14, verse 1, that's what we'd like, I'd like to do and then go through quickly through the context there. You'll see in Romans chapter 14, verse 1, it says, As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him. Same word in the Greek. Welcome him. As for the one who is weak in the faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. <coughs> Excuse me. So what does Paul mean when he brings up the subject of opinions here? This would be important for us. I think the King James has doubtful disputations. Doubtful disputations. Uh, the NIV has disputable matters. Just think a little bit about the word that's translated opinions in the ESV here in Romans chapter 4, 14, verse 1. Uh, in Greek, it's dialogizomai. And when you hear, you hear that pronounced, and my pronunciation is probably a little bit off, but uh, dialogizomai is where we get what English word you think? Dialogue. Okay? Dialogizomai. Dialogue. Yeah, it's, it's, it's close. We're talking Greek and English, right? Uh, it means to discuss or debate. Now, I, I doubt there's ever been a time when people have been more opinionated or more uh, feeling more justified in voicing their opinions than the day that you and I are living in. I, I'm not, that's not rhetorical. I'm not, and I'm, I'm, I, think, I don't think there ever has been a time when people have felt more empowered, more entitled, or more able to voice our opinions. Um, of course, one of the most more absurd uh, and dangerous uh, sentiments that has flourished in our contemporary culture is that no one's opinion matters more than anybody else's opinion, which, is get, which gets us in all kinds of trouble. Um, but one of the things that I've noticed over the course of the last couple of years in particular is how much uh, people, uh, with Christians being no exception to this, how much people in our current situation overestimate their ability to be able to know things, to know stuff. Ability to be able to discern when they're hearing the truth and when they're getting fed a line. And uh, especially in the media... Um, who has an agenda, who doesn't have an agenda, who's objective, who isn't. Because the reality is everybody has an agenda and nobody's objective. <coughs> I saw a survey published this past January that uh, revealed that about one-third of North American students feel that the Holocaust was either fabricated or exaggerated. One third. One of every three, three students in North American public institutions of education 
feel that the, the Holocaust, the Jewish Holocaust, was fabricated or exaggerated. We've entered, and Doug pointed this out a couple of weeks ago in his message, we've entered, we've left an era of uh, information for years and years. The whole time I was growing up, my, most of my adult life was like, this is the age of information. Wow, isn't this great? Well, now we have the internet. Man, it's just like a giant library. We never dreamed of anything like this. It is just crazy, phenomenal. But then we have a problem. Because I can, I can honestly tell you that we have really, we have left the age of information. We are now in the age of disinformation. And it's not that um, propaganda is new, because the KGB perfected the art of propaganda before there even was an internet. But the, the internet has provided a conduit allowing it to proliferate like nothing we have ever seen before. And I had the experience, I will not call it a privilege, I guess it was a privilege, but I had the experience of spending the best part of a day in the Holocaust Museum in Jerusalem in 2008. I can tell you with complete assurance that the Holocaust was neither uh, fabricated and there is no need to exaggerate anything that those artifacts demonstrate with absolute certainty. These are perilous times. We really need to be careful with the information that we attempt to filter out as we come to our opinions about the things that we think we know. Romans chapter 14, verse 2 and 3 says, One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed and there's that word again. God has welcomed him. In the church at Rome at this time, there were people uh, who were observing the thinking and behavior of others, and they were saying, well, that's just wrong. And they were passing judgment on these people on that basis. And Paul directs his comments to these individuals, and he says in verses 4 through 10, who are you to pass judgment on the Lord's servant? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than others, or better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The word conscience doesn't come up in Romans chapter 14, but the, but the idea is, is there as Paul describes this, um, this here, being convinced in, in one's own mind. Uh, verse 6, the one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. And the emphasis certainly here is on, is on belonging to the Lord, to be his. I hope you're his today. I hope that, that that's your sense of identity, that you belong to God through personal faith in Jesus Christ who made the way so that you could become his by suffering and dying for your sin and rising again victorious over the grave like we sang about in that first song. Verse 9 says, For to this end Christ died and lives again, 
that the, he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Verse 10, why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. Some things you just need to hold in reserve. Because someday all the truth will be completely manifest. But we're not living in that day. That day is coming. Uh, the subject of judging uh, is a big one and uh, bigger than we have time to deal with adequately today. I just want to try to focus my thoughts more on this idea of, uh, of what we know versus what we tend to think we know. Uh, and there is something that I think I would suggest you can hang your hat on here this morning, and that is, is that we are not as smart as we tend to think we are. I was talking to a pastoral colleague a while back, and he was telling me about a survey was done, that was done a number of years ago amongst uh, American college students. And uh, at the time, 93% of those college students were convinced or were of the opinion that they were a better than average driver. I think that might be a statistical impossibility. But that's what the survey showed. And uh, I don't know may, um, where you fall into that. Maybe it's different <clears throat> in your car. <clears throat> Maybe it's in your car it's like, wow, did you see that person merge? What a good driver. <laughs> you know. Hey, did you see that old guy? He just used his signal light. What a good driver. Right? Is that what it's like in your car? Hey, see that woman there? Look, she, did you see her do that shoulder check before she pulled in in front of me? That's amazing. What a good driver. Uh, that, it's not what it's like in my car, but it might be like that in your car. But. How, how, how about this? Turn to the person beside you and, and, and say, say to them, I'm not nearly as smart as I tend to think I am. <laughs> I know that's awkward, isn't it? Yeah, that's really awkward. Okay, try this then. Turn to the person beside you and say, you're not as smart as you think you are. <laughs> it might be easier. Is that easier? Now, maybe you're, maybe you're one of those people that says, oh, with me, I'm just a black and white kind of person. You know, there's a right and there's a wrong, and it's just that simple with me. Well, the problem with that line of thinking is, is that's exactly what Paul is saying here not to do. Um, because he's talking about opinions, which are things that are debatable. And a lot of things are debatable. Heaven knows a lot of things are debatable because we spend a lot of our time arguing over stuff. That is to say, they cannot be said with any kind of real certainty. Now, in saying that, we need to acknowledge that the fact that that's true also means that some things are not a matter of opinion. And in the biblical sense, what would those things be? the things that are not a matter of opinion. Well, Paul mentions a few in this, in this very passage. If you look at verses 17 through 19, he says, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. 
Those aren't debatable. Uh, whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men, so then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. That's not debatable. And now those three verses that, we just, that I just read, Romans chapter 14, verses 17, 18, and 19, are part of a section in this whole chapter where Paul talks about the uh, principle of not putting a stumbling block in front of your brother. If you picture the, uh, your life as a journey, uh, this, Paul says, that don't put a stumbling block in front of your brother. Uh, this is, uh, is not a debatable thing. We should not do that. Um, so in other words, you know, uh, you could be quite right about something in a technical sense. In this case, Romans chapter 14, you could be quite right about some freedom that you have and your personal rights to engage in that freedom and yet be completely, not completely wrong, but be wrong. <laughs> to be wrong, to be more wrong. If your inconsiderate attitude or bullish negativity affects someone's path forward in their relationship with God, then you're wrong, even if you're right. I'm pretty sure that that's kind of what he's getting at here. So now let's just look at the broader section. Okay, those three verses... Uh, part of a little bit larger section where he talks about the stumbling block, but let's just read through that and we'll try to speed things up here a little bit. Uh, chapter 14, verses uh, 13 through 15. Um, this is what precedes. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and I am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is... Uh, unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean. That's that idea of conscience I mentioned early, earlier. Verse 15, for your brother, if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer what? You are no longer what? Walking in love. See, this is a love issue. Welcoming one another is a love issue. Forgiving one another is a love issue. Bearing with one another is a, is a love issue. Encouraging one another is a love issue. Um, you're no longer uh, walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. Um, verses 16 uh, down through the end of the chapter. So do not let what you regard as good be evil spoken, uh, be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine, or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep it between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. That's the conscience that God gave you and I that we should not sin again. Notice throughout there the emphasis on brother or brothers. Let me say this to you today. Having the same politics as somebody does not make them your brother. 
Having the same opinion about something does not make someone your brother. But having Christ does when we have Christ in common. Now, just not to to drag this out, but I think that something we need to understand here is that none of this is to say that we should never express our opinions or talk about matters of opinion. The fact that these are debatable matters would suggest that there is a place and a time that where these things could and should be debated. Um, we, we should talk about these things, but they should never be the basis of our unity. They should never be the things that we divide over. Listen, uh, take a look at this quote from Larry Osborne. There is more to having a genuinely mosaic church than just racial and socioeconomic diversity. We also have to learn to work through the passionate and mutually exclusive opinions that we have in the realms of politics, theology, and ministry priorities. I am, not, I am talking about agreeing to disagree on matters of substance and things we feel passionate about. If we overlook the little stuff, we aren't bearing with one another. We're just showing common courtesy. Common courtesy is something we should extend to everyone. But when you start talking about the brotherhood, the brethren, the family of God, it goes way, way beyond that. Nor does Paul suggest to us that we simply ignore bad behavior or that we never correct one another. That we should simply just overlook offenses. Chapter 15 and verse 14, Paul says, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. That's one, another one of the one another's that we looked at back a few weeks ago. But the word instruct there is uh, probably not the best translation of the Greek word because the Greek word, according to Strong's, includes an element of caution and reproof. It's a warning, to warn, to counsel, to exhort, to caution, or to reprove gently because some things are clearly wrong. Some things are clearly wrong. And some things are clearly right. And the Bible talks a lot about the things that are clearly wrong and clearly right. And, you know, we're not going to expand into a whole thing here. But I will make reference of, to one example, Galatians chapter uh, 5, where Paul says uh, to the Galatian Christians, he says, uh, the works of the flesh are evident. Uh, what does he mean by evident? I would suggest to you that it means something, something like non-debatable. And then he lists them, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I think Doug might have read this list a couple weeks ago there. And he says, then he says, I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. When Paul says, you know, talks about uh, accepting people in spite of their opinions, he's not, these aren't opinions. These are things that are clearly wrong. And then he goes on to say, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. What does he mean, against such there is no law? Well, I would suggest it means something like indisputable. 
inevitably someone will say whenever we, we uh, approach this topic of welcoming one another and accepting one another and so on, people will say, well, what about the toxic people? What about having appropriate boundaries in your life that protect you from toxic people? I would just simply say that, that, that being toxic is not a debatable matter. I'd say that belongs in that first list in Galatians chapter 5 with strife and jealousy and enmity and, you know, and dissensions and divisions and those kinds of things. This is all really important stuff. In Paul's day, it was really important. It's extremely relevant in our, in our day. Because family members don't agree about everything. We'll never agree about everything. We could debate and discuss and argue for a thousand years and we still wouldn't agree about everything. When Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, when Paul says, I appeal to you brothers by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and same judgment, he's not talking about opinions about everything. He's not talking about agreeing about everything. He's talking about agreeing about the things that matter most, the important things, the things that we can know for sure, and the things that make us family, community. I'm going to read the first seven verses of Romans chapter 15 and conclude with, with that. What's our timeline here? I'm not, yeah, I'm over. Figures. <coughs> Who won the poll? No. 15, Romans 15, verses 1 through 7. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. By the way, when it comes to so many of the things that we, uh, that we uh, argue about, it's interesting who thinks they're the strong person and who thinks they're the weak person. Very interesting uh, thought, uh, question in regards to Romans chapter 14. But anyways, verse 2. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good. Let these admissions sink in your soul this morning, beloved. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it was written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. And then he says, may the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus. That's the thing. That's the point of agreement. That's the source of our unity. That together, verse 6, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. With one voice glorify the God and Father of our, Jesus, of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's our basis of unity. And verse 7 says, therefore, Therefore, welcome one another. Receive one another. Accept one another. As Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Some of the biggest wounds I've received in my life, particularly in my early, my early life, were the re result of rejection. And when I was 21... I came to Jesus, and he welcomed me with arms wide open. And he called me into a family. 
family that not only follows him, but a family that represents him. And I don't know if we think about that enough when we meet one another, when we greet one another, how much we need to be welcoming one another, just like Christ welcomed us. I'm way at a time. I apologize for going a little over, but will you stand uh, and pray with me? <clears throat> Lord, I just thank you for the privilege of being able to open up our scriptures with our church family today and consider some of these things and make some observations about what you have to say, Lord, we are so thankful for your word and we're so desperately in need of your instruction in our lives. And we thank you for your presence uh, in the church, your presence in our lives, and how you, by your spirit, teach us through your word, speaking to our hearts, revealing truth to us. Lord, help us to understand and appreciate these truths and how vitally important it is for us to represent you well with arms wide open, toward one another, that we might be a community of love and a community that represents you well and a community that fulfills uh, your vision when you said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I thank you for these loved ones here today and those joining us online. I pray you would just bless them with these truths. May they become a, a, a foundational reality in our lives as we walk before you with one another in Christian love. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.